Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank you for being here. We understand we have some pretty unsavory witnesses that get highly securitized before they come in. We thank you for going through that and being with us. In today's hearing, we'll discuss the next steps in our Iran policy. One of, uh, one of my criticisms of the JCPOA is that it would become our de facto Middle East policy and Iran would expand their destabilizing activities and I think we're seeing a lot of that today. Regionally, uh, we've seen an escalation in Iranian intervention. Iran, along with its allies in Russia, have continued to prop up Assad at the cost of countless lives in Syria. Iran's support for Shia militias in Iraq threatens the interest of Sunnis and Kurds alike, not to mention the Shia in Iraq that don't subscribe to the anti-American zero-sum politics of the militias that are there. Iran is arming the Houthis in Yemen, who are in turn attacking our Saudi allies and targeting our ships. Yemen now faces a humanitarian crisis, unprecedented in its history. Iran remains, Iran, Iran remains the foremost state sponsor of terrorism. It's Council Lebanese Hezbollah, an organization that has killed hundreds of Americans as among its closest allies. Iran also continues to detain several U.S. nationals. Last week, many members of this committee joined together in a bipartisan manner and introduced a bill to begin rebalancing our Iran policy. With a new administration in place, we have an opportunity to develop a comprehensive strategy to deal with both Iran's regional activities and a longer-term threat of our Iranian nuclear weapon. I know both of our witnesses have spent their careers both in and out of government grappling with this issue, and I look forward to hearing your ideas. We truly thank both of you for being here and uh, look forward to your testimony. And with that, I'll turn to my friend, Senator Ben Cardner, ranking member. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for calling this hearing. I want to thank both of our distinguished witnesses. They may have had difficulty getting through security, but we're glad that they're here uh, and their expertise in this subject matter. And Iran deserves uh, special attention, and this committee can, uh, I think, play a critical role. We have in the past. I think back about uh, the legislation that authorized the sanctions against Iran for its nuclear activities. I congratulate Senator Menendez for his leadership on that, on that legislation. It led to uh, sanctions being imposed by the United States. And then uh, with the uh, strong diplomatic efforts of our country and leadership, we got other countries to join us. We were able to isolate Iran to a point where they felt it was in their interest to negotiate with us and our allies for a nuclear agreement. During that process, Mr. Chairman, under your leadership, we were able to bring together different views on our committees for the proper review of that uh, legislation. I think as a result, it, the, the agreement was stronger and the public understood what was going on. We had much more transparency, so I think we played a very important role. Well, we're now 15 months past the JCPOA. You and I both opposed that agreement. Uh, it's been in force for 15 months, and I, I strongly believe it would be against U.S. interests to withdraw from the JCPOA or to take any actions that could be interpreted to um, uh, be in conflict with the JCPOA. Having said that, Iran's activities today uh, are as bad as they've ever been, and probably worse. Uh, they are certainly increasing their terrorist uh, sponsorship in the Middle East, as we see in so many different countries in that region. 
their record on violating the ballistic missile uh, obligations uh, are well known and well understood. Uh, their human rights violations against their own citizens is, is uh, horrible, one of the worst countries in the world. Uh, they violate uh, arms embargo, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's appropriate that this committee take a look at what we can do uh, to make sure that first that the Iran nuclear agreement is honored so that Iran does not become a nuclear weapon state, but then secondly, to look at those activities that were not covered under the JCPOA as to how we can play a stronger role. And Mr. Chairman, I particularly want to thank you and Senator Menendez, the work that we have done in bringing together uh, a bill that we introduced this week that will, I think, appropriately isolate the, the activities that I've previously mentioned for a stronger position for U.S. leadership among our allies to make sure that Iran understands. Yes, we will live up to the JCPOA. Yes, we believe in the Iran nuclear uh, ambitions must be uh, avoided, but there are other activities that are of equal concern, and we're going to continue to speak out and take action if Iran does not change its sponsorship of terrorism, if it does continues to violate ballistic missile obligations, if it violates arms embargo and human rights issues. And that's exactly what our legislation does, and I, I thank you for, for, for the efforts that we've made. We've got to recognize that there are other areas that we need to be prepared in dealing with Iran. Under the JCPOA, there are deadlines. Uh, after five years, the restrictions for conventional weapons sales uh, and technology go away. After eight years, the restrictions on ballistic missile-related transfers to Iran goes away. After, at 10 years, all provisions of the Security Council Resolution 2231 which brought the JCPOA into force are terminated. So we need to start thinking about, as we reach those dates, what is the appropriate policies for the United States without the protections we have uh, that currently exist. So it's important that we do that. It's difficult to find someone willing to disagree with the notion that Iran's behavior in the region is not getting worse. Uh, every conversation we have of what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Yemen, what's going on with the concerns of the Gulf uh, states, Iran comes into our discussions. So we need to take a very tough position. And lastly, Mr. Chairman, I know you'd be disappointed if I don't at least mention once the Trump administration in my opening statements. Uh, I am concerned about whether we have a, uh, a coherent policy from the Trump administration. I know it's early. I understand that. But I take a look at the skinny budget that they presented, and it would diminish U.S. role globally rather than strengthening our ability to deal with issues that are a concern of Iran. So I think it's important that this committee speak. I think it's important that, we, that the Trump administration is held accountable to make sure they understand the seriousness of Iran in that region and how we can constructively try to modify its destructive behavior. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you so much, and uh, please know we all are independent and uh, just uh, are trying to <laughs> make the best of uh, life as we find it. I, I do think that uh, what what we may see is an administration over the next couple of years um, that attempts to move to a place where um, Iran is involved in zero enrichment, and uh, that would be, uh, to me, a place that most people on the committee would, would welcome done appropriately. So um, with that, uh, let me introduce our two witnesses. 
Uh, first witness is Mr. Michael Singh, Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director of the Washington Institute. Uh, our second witness is the Honorable Martin Endick, Executive Vice President of Brookings Institution. Uh, you both have been here many times in the past. If you could summarize your comments in about five minutes or so without objection, your written testimony will be part of the record. And I'm uh, sure people look forward to their questions. If you could just uh, begin in the order introduced. And again, we thank you both for being here. Well, thank you, Chairman Corker. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here uh, in ranking member Cardin, members of the committee. Um, let me first say congratulations on uh, the bill. It's, uh, you know, Iran has long been one of these bipartisan issues. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's great to see a bipartisan bill that I think is uh, a good bill uh, on this issue. It's very encouraging. Um, Iran is, I think, one of the most pressing challenges that we face in the Middle East. It's the region's leading revisionist state. Uh, it's determined to alter the balance of power in the Middle East in its favor at the expense of the United States and our allies. Uh, it seeks to accomplish this aim through the destabilizing projection of power utilizing a sort of Middle Eastern version of hybrid warfare. Um, and I would agree with uh, you, Chairman, and uh, you, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, that Iran's power in the Middle East has grown steadily uh, over the last eight years, and especially since the Iran nuclear deal was signed. And there's a long list, and I won't uh, repeat that list, uh, but it's a list that I think is getting longer and getting worse. Um, that's not to say that Iran hasn't faced setbacks in the region. Um, its relationships, for example, with its Palestinian proxies, like Islamic Jihad and Hamas, uh, I think have suffered in the wake of the Arab uprisings. It's been challenged, certainly, by the rise of ISIS. And just today we saw, for example, an ISIS threat against Iran. Um, Russia's intervention in Syria has helped Iran in many ways. It's helped save the Assad regime, which is a critical ally for Iran. But it's also reduced Iran to a junior partner and given Iran a bit of a challenge in that sense. Uh, and U.S. allies, as a result of Iran, are more united in the region than ever uh, and looking to the United States to join them uh, to press back on Iran. Nevertheless, though, I agree with the general sentiment that Iran poses a significant challenge to U.S. interests, both directly through all these things we mentioned uh, and indirectly by contributing to the environment of sectarian strife and institutional breakdown in the region that's fueled the rise of ISIS and other jihadist groups. Uh, so in response, I've recommended in my written testimony and in previous writings that the new administration adopt a strategy of deterrence towards Iran, focused on ensuring that Iranian leaders understand that any challenge to U.S. interests and U.S. allies is going to come at a steep cost. Uh, such a strategy would advance three objectives. First, preventing Iran not just from getting a nuclear weapon, but from further advancing its nuclear weapons capability. Um, second, oh, and also sharing nuclear weapons technology, uh, not to forget that. Second, defeating Iranian ambitions to undermine our allies and reduce our influence in the region. And third, to stop Iran from supporting terrorist attacks and cyber attacks uh, against us and our allies. Uh, I think that any such strategy faces formidable obstacles. In the past, we've enjoyed strategic convergence with our allies, despite whatever tactical disputes we had with them, because we could all agree that the nuclear issue uh, was a threat uh, to us, to the Europeans, to Russia and China even. That's been replaced, I think, by strategic divergence, uh, because our allies outside the Middle East simply don't share our threat perception of Iran. They have a very different take on things. Uh, and Russia and China, of course, see Iran as a partner. We saw just today the Iranian president is in Russia, uh, and the Iranian foreign minister said that Russia could use Iranian bases on a case-by-case -case basis, which is remarkable in the historical sweep of things for Iran. Um, in addition, in the nuclear deal, in the JCPOA, we agreed to concede what I think were our most significant non-military tools, uh, financial sanctions, oil sanctions, which really leave us with weaker tools than we'd like to have to confront Iran's illicit behavior. And I agree that 
those obstacles will grow steeper as time goes on, as Iran is allowed to purchase conventional weapons systems, uh, test missiles, and get uh, help with missiles. It needs, for example, international help to develop an ICBM. So to successfully accomplish our objectives despite these obstacles, uh, I think we need to pursue three lines of action. First, with respect to the nuclear deal, I think we need to use what is, I think, a real eagerness in the world for us to remain within the deal as leverage to improve the deal, uh, if I could say that. Um, first, to insist on a strict interpretation of its terms, to sort of use what's already on the page, uh, but in a stricter way, perhaps, than we have so far. And second, to reach side understandings with European allies and others uh, to strengthen the deal sort of outside of the JCPOA framework. Uh, so, for example, pressing the IEA to be more aggressive in using its existing inspection authorities, uh, or persuading our allies to agree with us on protocols for punishing Iran uh, for even minor violations of the deal, which so far I think we've let pass uh, in the past year or so. Um, I think we also need to work with those allies and urge them to work with us to address the big flaws in the deal. And I see those uh, as, for example, delays in IEA access in the framework for inspections of suspect sites, uh, nuclear sites. Uh, the omission of Iran's missile activities. To me, missile activities are part of a nuclear program inherently. Um, and, of course, a deal sunset in 10 to 15 years, which is probably the biggest problem uh, with the JCPOA. Um, but I don't think we can look at Iran policy as just nuclear policy. I, I think that would be repeating a mistake that, unfortunately, we've made in the past. Um, we have to look at the nuclear issue through the lens of a broader policy. So the second line of action, I think, is countering Iranian malign influence in the region. Um, we have to push back on Iran's actions in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere, while strengthening our partners in those areas uh, to deal with Iran themselves. Uh, and I think we have to use our full range of policy tools, military, intelligence, sanctions, diplomacy, uh, to do that. Um, and to gain the support of our allies outside the region, due to that strategic divergence I mentioned, uh, I think we need to, whenever possible, do this in frameworks that resonate with those allies. So, for example, ending the Syrian conflict. And then finally, the third line of action, strengthening our allies' defenses against Iran, keeping in mind two principles. Uh, first, it needs to be keyed to the actual threats that Iran poses, things like proxy warfare, political subversion, uh, A2AD efforts abetted by Russia and China, for example. And then second, I think we need to try to forge our allies into a more effective multilateral alliance. So this isn't just a sort of you know, bouquet of bilateral alliances, but no real sort of multilateral structure to it. Uh, and I propose a framework to do that. Uh, just to, to sum up here, in all of these efforts, I think our policymaking needs to start with objectives, not with tactics. I think we need to put behind us the tendency we've had, I think, over the last couple of decades to sort of rule in or out this or that policy tool as a starting point. And we need to instead bring our full capabilities, which are formidable, I think, uh, to bear on this problem. Second, I think we need to see this challenge in its regional context. So, for example, I don't think we can sustainably defeat ISIS. Uh, if we don't also address Iran. So these two strategies have to move together, and we need to organize our bureaucracy accordingly. And then finally, I would agree with Senator Cardin that we need to invest in our own diplomatic capacity, which I think is vital for wielding all those tools, for making sanctions effective, uh, force effective, and engagement effective. Um, to me, international unity will only amplify the pressure on Iran, and when gaps develop between ourselves and our allies, uh, that gives our adversaries, whether it's Iran or somebody else, uh, room for maneuver. Uh, and I worry that those gaps will grow with the elections in Europe this year and other developments uh, that we're seeing, uh, and others will seek to exploit that. Thanks very much. Very good. Thank you so much, Mr. Endick. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It's a pleasure to be back here in f front of you and Senator Cardin and 
all your colleagues, I have to applaud the committee for the excellent work that you're doing on a bipartisan basis, no more importantly than here today uh, in the question of what to do about the challenge uh, from Iran. And uh, in that context, I, I applaud the bill, and, and I also applaud its call for its actual mandating of, of a discussion, development of a strategy for dealing with the Iranian challenge. Uh, I uh, want to associate myself with uh, a lot of what uh, my colleague uh, Michael Singh has said um, and, and uh, rather than repeat some of those things, I, I would like to focus specifically on what I think the necessary elements are of a pushback uh, strategy. Uh, I think we are all familiar with the kind of uh, dangers that Iran poses uh, and the way over the last four decades since the Iranian Revolution, it has used its proxies, uh, whether it's Hezbollah or Shia militias, uh, its uh, own uh, Irre Iranian Revolutionary Guard Force, uh, or support of, of uh, Shia populations or even Shia rebels like the Houthis in Yemen, uh, to exploit the cracks that exist in the Sunni world and uh, advance their hegemonic ambitions for the region. And one would have to say, when you look back at, at how, what they've done over the last four decades and where they are today, uh, they've had uh, considerable success. Uh, they have established an arc of influence that stretches from Lebanon on the Mediterranean Sea, across Syria in the Middle East heartland, to Iraq and Bahrain on the Gulf, and to Yemen on the Red Sea. Iran has been assiduously pursuing this effort and has a big stake in it. Uh, they live, the Iranians live in a strategic environment. They have practiced the art of strategies since the days of Cyrus the Great, 600 years before the birth of Christ. And they have formidable capacities for uh, dealing uh, with their and promoting their ambitions in the region. Uh, Therefore, any new American strategy to counter Iran's threats needs to take away account of the way that in the Middle East, everything is connected, particularly for the Iranians. So if we push back on Iran in Yemen, as the Trump administration is now considering doing, they might well stir up the Shia population in Bahrain. If we push back on Iran in Syria, there's a lot of loose talk about that today, they might well use the Shia militias in Iraq to undermine our effort to eliminate ISIS there or encourage Hamas to launch rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza. In short, countering Iran's regional ambitions is deadly business and we should approach it with the seriousness it requires, as I know this committee is doing. What we need is a comprehensive, integrated and sustainable pushback strategy. But in pursuing it, we should be careful about making threats unless we are prepared to back them up and we should be wary of declaring objectives that we have neither the will nor the capacity to achieve. I hoped that that era was over. I, uh, this morning, will just very quickly outline the six elements that I think are necessary in a comprehensive uh, strategy uh, towards pushing back Iran. The first as Senator Cardin has mentioned, 
is the need to rigorously enforce the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, that's the first element, most importantly because as long as it is rigorously enforced, it provides us with time to deal with the challenges that Iran is posing to us across the Middle East region. Uh, with it, everything becomes easier. Without it, everything becomes more difficult because we have to deal with the challenges of Iran's nuclear capabilities and the potential for a nuclear arms race that they would trigger. The second element is support for the Iraqi government of Haider al-Abadi and the Iraqi armed forces as they campaign to defeat ISIS and regain control of Mosul and the Sunni regions of Iraq. That's important because as a result of the last Gulf War, uh, the gates of Babylon were open to Iran and they moved in very quickly and very effectively to establish their dominance over the previous uh, Maliki government. Today, Abadi seeks some dis to take some distance from Iran, but he needs help to do so. And we, together with our Sunni allies, can counterbalance Iran in Iraq. And we have an opportunity particularly to do so in Mosul and to make sure that, that uh, the Shia militias are not able to move in there uh, and, and uh, establish control in the wake of our forcing ISIS out. That is a critical post-reconstruction challenge that, that we have to succeed in, not only to prevent uh, ISIS from, from uh, rebuilding itself in some other form, uh, even more malignant, but also to prevent that land bridge that Iran is seeking to establish from Iran across northern Iraq through Syria to Lebanon. The third element in the pushback strategy is promoting an effective political resolution of the civil war in Yemen. Uh, the idea that the Yemen civil war can be resolved by military force alone is an illusion which will only get us more uh, sucked into the quagmire that Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, our al Arab allies there, are already engaged in. To apply military pressure to produce a more reasonable outcome at the negotiating table is not an unreasonable approach, but to only focus on a military solution will be a problem that Iran will exploit. It's a low-cost way of diverting us from the other more important areas. My time has expired, and I will just quickly mention that Syria is the most complicated problem. Perhaps we can get into it in the discussion. We should not underestimate that Iran has a core interest there, and with 25,000 forces on the ground, has embedded itself both within the, uh, the Assad governing institutions and on the ground there. And we do not, Mr Chairman, have a vital interest in who controls Syria. Iran does. If we can push them out of Syria eventually, that would be a huge setback to them. But they will fight very hard to preserve their position. And we need to be very smart about the way we go about it in terms of uh, setting more modest objectives to restrict their ability to operate there and to insist that any political resolution requires the withdrawal of all foreign forces, which would give us the legitimacy to demand that the Iranian-controlled forces withdraw. Uh, the, uh, the last two elements, one is to concert our activities with our like-minded allies in the region, something I think we have a real opportunity to do. And finally, the controversial point that I make at the end there, but I think it is important that 
as we build up our leverage on Iran, including with the sanctions that, that you are uh, introducing here and the potential sanctions for any misbehaviour or failure to fulfil the JCPOA, we should engage in negotiations with the Iranians, making clear what our requirements are in terms of ending their export of the revolution, ending their destabilisation of our allies and the threatening of our allies in the region, uh, and accepting controls on their uh, missile and nuclear activities, particularly in uh, the period after the sunset. Yeah. Uh, I think that a combination of uh, these elements can achieve, over time, a pushback of Iran, and I applaud the committee for taking it on. Thank you. Uh, as is the case, I typically defer and uh, retain some time for interjections. I, I would like to just make one, um, and Mr. Endick, your comments made, us, made me think about this. There was a strong uh, divergence of opinion on this committee about the nuclear deal, and each person expressed themselves and voted the way they saw fit, and the deal went into play. What is pretty remarkable is I'm not aware of any committee member uh, since the beginning of this year that's called for it to be torn up. So as we move towards pushing back uh, against Iran, which I hope we'll do because I think we all realize that this was about one thing and that was a nuclear agreement, um, the fact is that the committee has stayed together on not ripping the agreement up but enforcing it, I would say radically, some people would say extremely, and I appreciate the, the comments that our witnesses have made. So. We have a beginning base here where I think people understand we're to coll collectively to gather on enforcing. We'd like to push back against Iran's other activities, and we meticulously, in this bill that's been introduced, stayed away from anything relative to the nuclear agreement. And then I think we all understand that down the road we still have work to do, that after year eight in particular, um, you start diminishing down to a zero breakout of time. And so as a committee, we've got additional work to do if we really wish to keep them from getting a nuclear weapon at some point. But I just say those things to say we've got a pretty good point of beginning reference here, and I thank you for highlighting that. And hopefully we'll work together to, again, push back against the many other activities that are taking place in the region, and has been mentioned by both witnesses, diplomatically work very closely with our allies, and let's face it, not so much allies, all of whom are involved in this deal, to make sure that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon. With that, Senator Cardin. Uh, let me thank both of our witnesses. I found your testimonies to be very helpful. And, um, you both agree that the United States should not unilaterally withdraw from the JCPOA. I see that in your statements and in your written comments. Uh, and I agree with that. I think that would isolate us diplomatically. You both agree that the United States must be actively engaged in diplomacy. We see that in Iraq particularly, as we're, Iraq is reaching a critical point with Mosul falling. And if Iraq central government is not able to fill the void of, of confidence of all communities and security of all communities, we know the Shia militia in Iran will try to develop more influence in Iraq allowing, enabling Iran a greater influence in the region that they have. It seems to me the immediate issue about Iran's influence in that region is Russia. 
Russia is facilitating Iran and Syria. Russia is permitting Iran to finance terrorist operations in that region. And when we talk to our Gulf partners, Yemen, for example, it's part, you know, Iran is very much involved in cr creating that instability. Mr. Indic, you indicated that it would be fantasy to give Russia relief in regards to Ukraine in exchange for their help in, in uh, Syria because they won't deliver in Syria, at least that's the implication. So what should we do in regards to Russia's support for Iran? Is there any way that we can divide that and be able to minimize Iran's support from Russia? Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. Uh, Michael Singh uh, referred to the fact that Russia and Iran are not exactly on the same page, and I think we need to understand that uh, f f from the beginning. Um, they, are, uh, they have a common interest in Syria in uh, propping up the Assad regime, uh, but they are rivals for influence in Syria. Uh, the Iranians, as I've described it, have a, uh, a core interest because of the way that that uh, advantages every other, everything else that they're trying to do in the region to establish their hegemony. The Russians have a long-time strategic interest in Syria, one which, by the way, we never really challenged because we didn't see it as much of a threat to our own strategic interests. Uh, they have port facilities there. They now have uh, air bases uh, and this has proved to be important to them, not only in terms of their objectives in Syria, which is to uh, ensure that the regime survives and that there's no chaos that, that they fear would come from the regime's overthrow that would spread and infect uh, the Muslim populations in their own uh, countries, in their own country, I should say. So they, they have a very real... Uh, interest and a real concern there. But they have no particular interest in, in beyond the, the way the Iranians can help uh, keep the Assad regime in power. They have no particular interest in helping Iran uh, in Syria. And certainly if there were to be uh, a, an effective ceasefire, which is coming apart at the moment, but were they able to uh, affect that and a political uh, process could... could um, be put in place, then I, don't, I think that, that the competition between them would accelerate. And let, me, let me just uh, interrupt on that. I, I agree with you. I understand Russia has limited interest. We heard they had limited interest in protecting the Assad regime, but it's been going on for years, and they're still there. So they may have limited interest in dealing with the objectives of Iran, but they're partners in this. How do we divide them? Mr. Singh, do you have a suggestion here? Well, I, I don't disagree with, uh, with Ambassador Indyk. I, I think it's going to be awfully hard. I, I agree with the proposition that in the long run, they, have, they don't have the same interests. Um, and we see that Russia is trying to expand its influence in the region, not just in Syria, but it's sort of um, peppering its influence throughout the region, as we see with these uh, Russian special forces who are in Egypt now, for example, reportedly. Um, but I think right now, and for the foreseeable future uh, in that conflict in Syria, they need each other operationally. Uh, I think for Russia, you know, Iran is the ground force. Uh, and as we know ourselves, if, you've only, if you're only putting in an air force, uh, you need also a ground force to go and sort of direct things there and, and hold things. Um, and for Iran, I, I think that the Assad regime would have fallen 
uh, were it not for Russia's air intervention and artillery intervention. So, so they're, they need each other operationally for now, even if they don't have the same interests. And that, that poses a real obstacle to any effort to split them. So we've defined the problem. We don't know a strategy to unlock their cooperation. That's a very good point, that they need each other. And for the foreseeable future, there's very little that's going to change that equation. Is that what we're all saying? I, I would say, though, that, that that's, that's for now. That's for as long as they're in this phase of the conflict in Syria. Um, perhaps as this conflict develops, for example, as our plans towards rocket develop and so forth, that will change. And there I, I agree with what Ambassador Indyk said, that, that ultimately the way to drive a wedge between Russia and Iran is by focusing on Iran's desperate need, I think, for the Assad regime to remain in place uh, and, and Russia's lack of that need, for example. I think we can focus on removing all foreign forces from Syria, which is something Iran can't accept, but Russia perhaps uh, could be more open to. I would just add one last point. We could also concentrate on what we do about Russia, and that's why there's a bipartisan bill here to put more pressure on Russia to make Syria a heavier cost for them in their partnership with Iran. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, both of you, for uh, your time and testimony today. Uh, Mr. Singh, in the beginning of your, your testimony, you talked about areas in which uh, Iran has grown in strength uh, because of the JCPOA. Uh, you mentioned some of them in your written testimony. Could you perhaps uh, talk about them openly here at the hearing, ways that Iran has been strengthened as a result of the JCPOA in a, in a, in a fashion the United States uh, isn't comfortable with? Of course, Senator, I'd be happy to do so. And I, and I would say in the wake of the JCPOA, rather than directly because of the JCPOA, perhaps, um, just to be a little bit more cautious about it. Um, but I think we can see this across the region. In Lebanon, uh, you have uh, Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy, has a stranglehold now on the government. Um, our efforts to sort of promote the sovereignty of the Lebanese government, I would say, have fallen a bit by the wayside uh, over the past several years. In Syria, I think it's really the Iranian uh, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is calling the shots for the Assad regime, bringing in foreign fighters from Afghanistan and Pakistan, and facing, frankly, very few obstacles to doing that. In Iraq, you have these deeply entrenched Iranian-backed militias uh, who are, I think, a big threat to the sovereignty uh, of Baghdad and will be a real challenge post-liberation of Mosul uh, as perhaps these communities start eyeing one another warily. Uh, in Yemen, uh, as, uh, as has already been mentioned, we have uh, Iranian forces not only providing arms to the Houthis by sea and by land, uh, but also, according to our military forces, connected to these anti-ship cruise missile attacks on U.S. forces and commercial shipping in the Babel Mandeb Strait, which to me is a problem which we can't pay enough attention to because that's just an absolutely critical uh, maritime choke point. Um, we've seen missile testing from Iran in absolute defiance of Resolution 2231, which enshrines the JCPOA. Uh, and while the United States has responded with some sanctions, we've seen basically silence uh, from the rest of the world. Even though they urge us to keep up our end of the deal, uh, we haven't seen them too eager to enforce Resolution 2231 against Iranians. And so if I could interrupt right there, because you mentioned the strategic convergence and then, of course, the strategic divergence, and both of you, Ambassador Endick as well as you, Mr. Singh, talked about uh, the, uh, our allies and the way we see uh, Iran versus perhaps some others and the divergence that we now see. Why the divergence when you talk about the activities that you have seen and the bad behavior, whether it's missile uh, testing, further exploration of a missile program, why the divergence? Well, I think when it comes to uh, the nuclear threat, uh, nuclear threat, again, we could all sort of agree that uh, nuclear proliferation was a bad thing. 
When it comes to terrorism, though, I, I think for many of our allies uh, in, say, Europe or certainly Russia and China, um, they're less uh, likely to sort of take the terrorism threat coming from Iran seriously. Um, they certainly take seriously the threat of terrorism from, say, ISIS and, and jihadist groups, um, but they tend to dismiss it from Iran, in part because uh, they, they don't see it as much on their soil. Now, actually, there has been uh, Iranian-sponsored terrorism on European soil. Uh, for example, there was a Hezbollah attack in Bulgaria, I believe, uh, just in the past few years. Um, they also, think, I, I think, take the missile threat uh, less seriously for, for a variety of reasons, frankly. Um, this is why I say when we do approach these allies, I think we have to approach them in a way which isn't simply focused on uh, let's push back on Iran, but is focused on the broader region and the impact that Iran's activities have on issues like Syria uh, or, say, human rights, uh, where they, you know, frankly may uh, show more interest. And, and uh, if you go back to March, just a, a week ago, March 21st, 2017, uh, the United States imposed, we sanctioned 30 entities and individuals in relation to Iran, North Korea, and Syria Non-Proliferation Act. Um, Iran claimed that these sanctions violated the JCPOA. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, any, any step we take, uh, non-nuclear sanctions undermining the JCPOA, at least in their, their belief? Yeah, well, they'll, they'll claim this, I think, for every step that we take, that uh, we're violating the JCPOA because they know that this is an effective negotiating tactic with our partners. It'll get others in Europe uh, and elsewhere to put pressure on us not to take these steps, uh, even though these are steps which clearly don't violate uh, the JCPOA. I think that needs to be recognized very clearly. Um, and I think it's also their, their attempt to use leverage against us, to get us to be cautious, to get us to uh, maybe dilute some of the steps we'd otherwise take and, and to sort of take it easy on things. They're trying to extract as much as they can out of this deal, and, uh, and frankly, uh, we should expect them to do that. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard, do you believe that we should designate, United States should designate them as a foreign terrorist organization? I tend not to think that. Um, I, I do believe that we should uh, punish them and sanction them for their support for terrorism. Um, but I'm, I'm wary about sort of uh, picking and choosing good guys and bad guys within the Iranian regime. I think that uh, we need to recognize that Iran... But there are good guys and bad guys within the Iranian regime. Well, I think we need to recognize that Iran is a state sponsor of terror. And, you know, from my point of view, um, Iran will use various uh, organs of its government uh, in pursuit uh, of these goals, supporting terrorism. For example, the Ministry of uh, Intelligence and Security, the Basij forces, and so forth. Um, and I'm always a bit wary when sort of uh, folks seem to think, well, maybe the Revolutionary Guards are somehow a rogue element that's not carrying out state policy. And to me, our real problem here is state policy. Um, and I think we need to remain focused on that. Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin for convening this important hearing. And uh, to our two compelling witnesses and for your leadership in uh, making possible bipartisan legislation in this area, as has been um, thoroughly uh, reviewed by our witnesses today. Um, despite the JCPOA, uh, Iran continues uh, its bad behavior uh, to preach anti-Semitism and call for the destruction of Israel, to build its military arsenal and support terrorism throughout the region, to conduct ballistic missile tests in violation of numerous UN Security Council resolutions, and to detain Americans and violate the human rights of its citizens and Iranians. Um, these are not the actions of a responsible state seeking to rejoin the international community. And it's because of these provocations that we need to take stronger action to disrupt uh, their destabilizing actions and their regional alliances. Um, so I was glad to join with 13 colleagues, both Republicans and Democrats, to introduce new, tougher sanctions language, as you've reviewed. Um, let me ask if I could uh, first, uh, Mr. Singh, about freedom of navigation. Iran has increasingly harassed uh, both American and allied vessels in the Persian Gulf. 
what's their goal? What's their purpose behind these incidents? And how do we respond in a way that doesn't risk a miscalculation or inadvertent clashes between American and Iranian ships? Well, uh, you're absolutely right, Senator. There were 35 of those incidents in 2016. And according to our Navy, the Iranians are getting more aggressive uh, and less predictable. And I've had the, the honor and the privilege of actually sitting with our sailors as they try to sort through these threats. Uh, and I can tell you, if it wasn't for the professionalism of our Navy, uh, things would be much, much worse. Um, why does Iran do it? I think they do it for a number of reasons. Part of it is just chest thumping. They want to show that they're sort of confronting the United States uh, in uh, ways um, which they can then go and sort of splash over sort of uh, the internet and market uh, uh, to show that they're to be taken seriously. Um, in part, they can do it because they know that we will be professional. They, they have a long history of interacting with our Navy. They know that we're not rash in our actions, and they're taking advantage of that uh, to an extent. What can we do? I think that we need to be um, creative about the way we conduct our sort of freedom of navigation operations, challenging not only what Iran is doing in terms of confronting our Navy, but challenging some of their illegitimate maritime claims, because they claim territorial seas there, which we and others don't recognize. Um, and you're right, we have to be careful about escalation, but I think we can be more creative than we have been. Thank you, Mr. Singh. Let me um, ask further, if I could, Mr. Indyk, about interdictions and Americans detained in Iran. Um, we've been successful both directly and with some allies in some interdictions uh, of uh, weapons flows uh, into the Houthis and regionally, um, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, as well as uh, into Yemen. What can Congress do um, to support enhanced and more effective interdictions? Um, and my last question, Mr. Indyk, and I'd be interested in Mr. Singh's response as well. Do you believe um, the administration taking a harder line on Iran will imperil American citizens detained in the country. And what more could we be doing uh, to advocate uh, for the release of Bob Levinson and, and other Americans currently detained? Thank you. Uh, in terms of what Congress can do, I, I, I do think that you're already uh, doing the necessary in terms of uh, sending a clear signal of, of support for uh, uh, op uh, strong signal for opposition to what Iran is doing in the region. As far as the interdiction is concerned, um, that is uh, ongoing, as you pointed out. Uh, I'm, I think that, that we should certainly have, as part of the pushback strategy, an interdiction strategy designed to, to cut off any kind of uh, arms supplies to any of the different proxies that the Iranians are using. Uh, and, uh, you know, the operation now in Hodeida, which the administration is now considering giving greater support to, uh, that's the port on the Red Sea uh, in Ethiopia, is, I think, has a, has a strategic logic to it. Denying Iran uh, the ability to access that port is, is uh, very important. So I think there are a range of things that we can do uh, in terms of uh, stepping up the interdiction. And there are other... Uh, countries in the region with naval capabilities uh, who are also able to do that, and that's in the context of a, of a regional approach in which we concert our activities uh, with our regional allies, which is something I also uh, suggested. Maybe uh, and, and any thoughts on Americans on detained, such hostages. as any thoughts about hostages or others? Um, let me just say on interdictions very quickly, um, two things which I would suggest are Number one, uh, interdictions are really based on intelligence more than anything else. And, and I think we do need to be uh, sure that we're remaining laser-focused on intelligence gathering on Iran. Uh, there's a lot of competing priorities in the region. Maybe that means expanding uh, the overall sort of uh, resources for intelligence in the Middle East. 
Um, but without the intelligence, you can't do the interdictions. I think we also need to press the executive branch to publicize interdictions more. We used to do road shows, uh, you know, when we would catch the Iranians supporting Iraqi militias, the Taliban, and so forth. I'd like to see us do more of that, frankly. On American citizens, look, I would say that I, I think we had a, relatively speaking, accommodating policy towards the Iranians over the last uh, several years, and there were a lot of American citizens who were taken hostage by the regime. Uh, part of that is due to the fact that a lot of that uh, is driven by domestic Iranian factors. Um, but I don't think, frankly, that uh, we do ourselves any favors by trying to be accommodating and, and thereby sort of maybe helping American citizens. Actually, I think when the Iranians believe there's a price to be paid for taking hostages, then they might think twice about doing it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Thank Jim. you, sir. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your appearance here today and, and testimony to these issues. Mr. Singh, uh, in your testimony, you speak to the importance of uh, appointing a single official at the state to oversee all aspects of Iran policy, from JCPOA implementation to more broadly our policy with respect to uh, Iran and, and throughout the region. Um, the need for an integrated, coordinated strategy running through one person over at the State Department. Why is it and uh, what uh, that, you know, our, our current State Department as organized isn't able to, to produce a single integrated strategy with respect to Iran. Speak to the deficiencies as you see them in the current org structure over at state that prevents that. Sure. Well, you know, we, we do have a tendency to appoint envoys or sort of special officials for this or that aspect uh, of not just Iran policy, but policy in general. So we have a coordinator for JCPOA implementation, for example. Um, but what we often lack is then a sort of official who can oversee all of that, um, and not only oversee all of Iran policy, but then connect the dots with Iran policy, counter-ISIS policy, maybe what we're doing in Syria. You know, you'd like that person to be maybe the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, um, but it turns out that person is often disempowered uh, and maybe other pieces of uh, the policy over at the White House or DOD and so forth. Um, why can't we do it? It's hard to answer that question. In part, it's just the sort of managerial choices of, uh, of secretaries of state or administrations. So, so what choices, and Mr. Indyk, I'll, I'll be interested, uh, based on your experiences uh, from 97 to 2000 as Assistant Secretary of Near East Affairs, I know you can speak to this, um, but um, what managerial choices might be made differently by a secretary of state uh, through the president's direction? Uh, to help facilitate change in this area? What I would personally like to see is I would like to see an official of the State Department, say the Assistant Secretary for NEA, um, have authority over Iran policy, and they could have people under them, for example, who coordinate the JCPOA or coordinate sanctions and so forth. Um, and then that person should report to uh, a pretty well-organized interagency process that looks at all of Iran policy um, that's maybe led by the Deputy National Security Advisor or something like Mr. that. Mr. Indyk, uh, do you agree with that? And surely this has been put forward before as an idea, but nonetheless, presidents and, and secretaries of states uh, continue to do a run around the bureaucracy, as it were. And I, I try not to say that disparagingly. They're very competent people at the State Department, but um, uh, there's these end runs that are created uh, around the existing bureaucracy. Um, despite what strikes me as a compelling recommendation put forward probably many, many times. Well, I was uh, both an assistant secretary uh, for the Near East and a special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian <laughs> okay. negotiations. You're, you're well uh, situated to speak to this. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and in this case, uh, as, as Michael has suggested, 
I do think that Iran policy should be concentrated in the hands of an effective assistant sec- and empowered assistant secretary uh, for, for the Near East. And that's because that assistant secretary has control over all of the embassies in the region uh, and uh, all of the, the staff within the, uh, within the bureau. But it's really important that that person be empowered by the Secretary of State uh, to uh, be able to implement the policy. So why hasn't this happened? Uh, I'm going to press you a little bit on this, um, and, and perhaps you don't know, uh, but uh, either of you? Why, why hasn't it happened in this Yeah, why have we not well, uh, empowered our assistant secretaries um, to, to own uh, the regional policy? Uh, Not just in this area, but in other areas of the world. Well, I think they're way behind in terms of making those appointments, and and they need they need to get those people in place. Uh, He means he means any administration across administrations. Oh no! Well, we in the time that I was assistant secretary, that that I'm describing a situation that I had. I think over time, uh, different secretaries of state have different approaches, and and uh, the proliferation of special envoys, I think, is a bad thing. Yes, because it did it dissipates the focus and reduces the effectiveness. But the other, you know, so I think it's important to empower not just the Middle East Assistant Secretary, but all of the Assistant Secretaries. There's too much to do outside in the world for the Secretary of State and his undersecretaries. But the other point is is the one that Michael made. There has to be a lash-up with the White House and and the National Security Advisor and and, uh, his deputy. Because that's where the policy gets coordinated across the bureaucracy. And that's essential, that the strategy needs to be devised in cooperation between those two parties in order for it to be effective. Very briefly, are there, are there any other organizational reforms that uh, this committee should be aware of that would facilitate the creation of, of coordinated, integrated strategies uh, in this region and in other regions? Well, I think quite a few. I mean, and, and I'd, I'd have a pretty long answer to that, uh, and I'll try to be succinct, I guess. Um, I know there's been a lot of uh, debate about the State Department budget. Um, I'm, I'm not personally uh, enthusiastic about draconian cuts to the State Department budget, but its budget has increased significantly over time, and I, and I think that um, the, for the State Department to argue for more, it needs to show that it's spending its current budget wisely. And I think, frankly, if you ask State Department employees, and I was a Foreign Service officer for nine years, they're less focused on the budget. Of course, they'd love to have a bigger budget, as every sort of bureau uh, agency would. Um, But what they're focused on is, uh, do individual employees have significant responsibility? Is there room for advancement? Is there um, room for reward if you're doing well? Uh, And is the agency overall working well? And, And to me, we have taken away from that over time. So, for example, when we had the second Deputy of Sec- Secretary of State position, which I understand the new administration won't fill, to me that gave sort of supporting services a seat at the policy table, and that wasn't appropriate. Uh, we have, I think, a lot of bureaus which have been created at the State Department, which maybe are not functioning well, uh, maybe aren't necessary and should be folded in elsewhere. And when you create bureaus, um, remember, you're not just sort of focusing on an issue, but you're creating a sort of stress on shared services, uh, on embassies overseas, because all those folks will want to go overseas. And there, there's much more to this answer, but I think there's plenty that can be done. Well, I'll look forward to continuing the dialogue. I do want to be respectful of my colleagues, and uh, perhaps it, this committee should uh, weigh in when bureaus are created in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I will say, uh, as my first interjection, we pulled up the numbers of envoys. It's 
uh, more more than the number of employees I thought we had at the State Department. So it's a it's a long list, and uh, I think what y'all suggested uh, is a very good one, and that is empowering the people who have control over these areas and not dissipating their power by working an end around with an envoy that maybe you're working around an ineffective assistant secretary. I don't know, but if that's the case, um, changes need to be made, it would seem. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good hearing and, and good testimony thus far. When I am in the region, one of the things that I often hear is a, a concern by others uh, in countries all around the region of being kind of trampled in a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and they feel like they're under the foot of it, and they hope that they would one day not be under the foot of it. Recently, there have been two developments that I were, have been interested in, and I would just like you to comment on them. One, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia worked out a deal for pilgrims from Iran to come to the Mecca for Hajj after this one-year sort of interruption of it. And second, the GCC in December decided, and I think Saudi Arabia must have been tacitly approving this, that there would be some potential for discussion about cooperation between GCC nations and Iran. Uh, the Iranian president went to Kuwait, I believe, and then the Kuwaiti foreign minister paid a visit to Iran. Talk a little bit about the prospects that you would see for GCC cooperation with Iran and whether, if not a warm relationship, at least the, 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 the temperature and the tension could somewhat be abated in that kind of a dialogue. Look, I think, uh, Senator, thank you for the question. I think that, that uh, uh, lowering the flames of sectarian conflict is an interest of the United States. Uh, if, if it's possible to do. And normalizing relations between uh, our Gulf Arab allies and Iran is also a desirable end state to aim for. Uh, but it depends on Iran changing its objectives and behavior. So in a tactical area of Hajj pilgrimage, which is important to the people of Iran, uh, and, and the Saudis have responsibility for the Hajj, they need to find a way to make that work. It's, it's both the Saudi responsibility and the Iranian government interest to enable their people to go on a Hajj. So in a narrow area uh, of common interest, they can figure that one out. More broadly, as you've, as you've suggested, there is a, a, a willingness on the part of the GCC to actually engage with Iran if Iran is prepared to change its behavior. And the three points that I made about the things that we should engage with Iran to talk to them about are the same things that they're talking about. Uh, and, and, you know, what their real concern is, is that the Iranians are seeking to encircle them, destabilize them, using uh, Shia populations where they can, Iraq and Bahrain as being the most obvious examples. So I, th I think that, that uh, there's... A, a very much a desire on their part to, to move out, if they can, from this endless conflict which has been going on for decades now and causes a huge amount of tension in the region and disruption. Uh, but but uh, they feel very strongly that unless Iran understands that it's not going to get away with this, they're not going to be able to, to engage with them. And that's why I also think they will not oppose us engaging with the Iranians as long as it's part of a pushback mm -hmm. strategy, mm -hmm. uh, because that's consistent with them. And as long as we 
coordinate with them rather than do it behind their backs. Mr. Singh. Sure, I, I agree with a, a lot of what Martin said. Um, I, I do want to say, though, that I, I'm skeptical about this sort of premise of an Iran-Saudi Arabia rivalry in the region. Certainly, there is a long-standing rivalry between Iran and the Gulf states that predates the 1979 Islamic Revolution. But it's important to bear in mind that um, it's not just the Gulf Arabs, but also the Turks, the Israelis, most of Iran's neighbors who have a lot of problems with Iran. Uh, and I think that's largely because of Iran's strategy for pursuing its objectives, for the objectives themselves and then its strategy of going about its business. Um, because Iran does engage in proxy warfare, political subversion, uh, and really seeks as an aim to uh, weaken the institutions and weaken uh, the sort of security uh, sort of state uh, of its neighbors. I think a lot of what Iran is doing, for example, in Yemen uh, is duplicating its strategy in Lebanon, where it's trying to create a sort of security preoccupation uh, for uh, an adversary uh, that would otherwise maybe be focused on Iran. So I, I agree with Martin that they, they will try to find some stability. Their neighbors, you know, they don't want to live in a state of constant tension and conflict. But until Iran's strategy changes, uh, I don't see any of this going away. And bear in mind, just one last thought, that Iran doesn't, I think, see Saudi Arabia as its main rival. It sees the United States as its main rival in the region. That's how I think Iran conceives of itself. And so it's really trying to push back, first and foremost, on our presence and influence in the region. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, appreciate your holding the hearing. And uh, Mr. Singh, you noted in your testimony something I thought was interesting, which is that you believe that the Iranian nuclear program is dangerous because Iranian foreign policy is dangerous. And as I look back at what happened over the last several years, it seems to me that one of the mistakes the previous administration made was failing to link the negotiations over an Iran deal with other issues that are unrelated to the, to the weapons program, um, but to create real instability in the region. And we've talked a lot about that today. Um, at the time, I remember the Obama administration arguing that if we could just get this agreement done, then we'd be able to have leverage over Iran on these other issues and hold them accountable. I think just the opposite happened, to be frank with you. I think because we were so afraid they were going to walk away that we pulled back in terms of holding them accountable on non-nuclear behavior. Um, I, I just wonder if you could give us your sense of what we should do now. Um, you've talked about several ideas, but I, I look at what's happening in Yemen. You talked about proxy wars. You look at Hezbollah. And frankly, I think the immediate danger of the region is not nuclear, it's conventional, and specifically Hezbollah and Israel. Um, I also look at what's happening in the sea lanes. You mentioned that today, and uh, you talked about some new issues outside the Straits of Hormuz and what's happening with them harassing our naval ships, but also commercial uh, vessels, certainly the missile testing, um, all of which has just continued unabated. And there hasn't been any leverage that's been applied based on the agreement. So we've got a new administration. We have a fresh start. Uh, again, you've laid out various ideas. I'm going to challenge you both. Give us the two most important ideas that each of you have to deal with the non-nuclear behavior in the region? Well, Senator Portman, I, I, let me say first, I agree with, with your analysis. I, I think one of the most important ideas we could have for pushing back on Iran in the region is to sort of reverse the paradigm which we've approached, uh, um, through which we've approached this issue for the past eight years, I would say. I think that Iran was inappropriately seen as primarily a non-proliferation problem. Uh, and in a sense, we, as I said, 
viewed Iran policy through the lens of the nuclear negotiations. Uh, it's not that the nuclear issue isn't important. It's, it's absolutely critical, uh, but largely because, uh, not just because of proliferation, but because Iran is such a threat mm -hmm. to the region. Um, and I think we now need to reverse that. We need to see the nuclear issue and the JCPOA through the lens of our efforts to counter the broader threats that Iran poses. And so we can't subordinate uh, our efforts to push back on Iran to any desire to preserve the JCPOA. I think we should want to preserve the JCPOA for, for a lot of the reasons that have already been mentioned, but not if it means having to act against our own interests, not if it means having to refrain from addressing those broader threats that Iran poses. Um, just the second idea is essentially that, again, by doing that, by showing our partners in the region, by showing our allies in the region that we're not just focused on, say, the ISIS threat, we're not just focused on, say, Syria or, or, or this or that, but we're focused on pushing back on Iran, I actually think that that will unlock uh, cooperation at a sort of broader strategic level around the region. I think we'll get a, a better hearing when it comes to, say, helping Iraq from our allies no. um, or pushing back uh, on the Assad regime in Syria if they believe that we're strategically on the same page as they are. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You didn't manage to dodge my question about giving me your top two. So I'm going to move to uh, Mr. Indyk. Uh, Ambassador Indyk, you give me what your top two are. Uh, look, the first one is a novel idea of having a comprehensive strategy for dealing with Iran's challenges in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, Bringing uh, our partners in, the, the, the Gulf state countries and, and others. Yes, but a comprehensive strategy that deals with all of the places where they are, they are pushing and promoting Mm -hmm. uh, their hegemonic ambitions. Mm -hmm. Number two. And, so, and number two is to understand where the priorities need to be. The two most important places for a pushback strategy are Iraq and Syria. And there's a real opportunity in Iraq because we have something to work with now and the mm -hmm. Sunni, our Sunni Arab allies, are for the first time, they regarded the regime as Persian, they didn't want to deal with them. For the first time, they're ready to engage with the Abadi government and to help with that effort uh, to, to deal with the aftermath of the elimination of ISIS. But Syria also. Syria is much more complicated. We've got much less to deal with. Mm -hmm. but, but those are the two most important places where we can have an impact and where we can start to take apart Iran's... Uh, and listen, I was, I was uh, encouraged to hear what you said about uh, the Iraqi prime minister uh, being interested in actually having some distance from Iran. He was here, as you know, last week. We had the opportunity to visit with him. And uh, I, I mean, I sense a little change in the attitude as, as well. But on the ground, do you see that? In other words, do you see the, uh, the Shia forces uh, in Iraq, not uh, the Iranian forces, uh, being willing to also have uh, some distance? You talked about the necessity of Mosul uh, not being a, a victory uh, for Iran and its uh, surrogate forces. But do you see the other Shia, the Shia community in, in, in Iraq also being willing to encourage that distance? Well, I think the key is, is uh, what comes from the top. If, if we have a government that is prepared to look after the interests of all of its separate communities rather than to favour one over, over the other, we, that's a huge advance. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, in terms of, of the Shia militias rather than the Shia community, that is an incredibly complicated and delicate issue mm -hmm. because we do not need the Shia militias to create problems for us as we prosecute the, the war against ISIS in well, Muslim. My, my time has expired. I don't want to hold my other colleagues up, but we look forward to following up with you on, on that particular issue. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Markley, there are 54 
envoys, special envoys. Uh, most of them are vacant. Uh, I know each person here probably has their special one they'd like to see reinstated, but maybe a good starting point would be for all of them to remain vacant for a while. Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. The question I'd like to have you all elaborate on is it seems to me there's a disconnect between America's position and the UN resolutions regarding ballistic missiles. Our position really is that the development of medium-range missiles or longer-range missiles are directly a threat, a threat to the, the region, uh, and uh, we're developing legislation for sanctions that speak specifically to ballistic missile programs. But if we look at the UN resolutions, the UN resolution uh, is kind of, uh, well, not so clear. And I'll put it, it calls upon, rather than requiring Iran to refrain from conducting missile tests. And then it, it uh, has a provision that refers to ballistic missiles that are designed to carry nuclear warheads. And that, by the way, is um, a step back from the previous UN resolution, which said ballistic missiles capable, which is more of a th reference to throw weight. Um, and... Um, so while we're focusing in on the ballistic missiles as inherently a threat, the UN has had this design to carry nuclear weapons uh, or warheads uh, language. And so uh, to what degree did we attempt to pursue the pure opposition to the ballistic missiles program itself? Did we not have that support at the UN? Uh, to what degree do our allies uh, share our view? versus the, the UN language view, and uh, how will that affect our ability to bring the international community together in our effort to oppose the Iranian ballistic missile program? Uh, well, Senator, you're, you're absolutely right. The Resolution 2231 weakens um, previous international sanctions against Iran on missiles uh, in the two ways that you mentioned, and then, of course, by um, uh, making temporary the ban on helping Iran with its missile program. That'll expire uh, eight years from the implementation of the JCPOA, so I think in 2023. That, in a way, is the most critical piece because if Iran wants an ICBM, it will need international assistance. Um, and under this resolution, perhaps it could get that international assistance starting in just now seven years. Um, we fought, I mean, in the mid-2000s, I can tell you, I, I can't really say whether the Obama administration pressed to have this included in the negotiations. I think they did it first and then dropped it. Um, we pressed very hard in the initial resolutions, 1696, 1737, and so forth, to get missiles into these resolutions because we saw, in part as a result of our North Korea experience, that missiles really can't be divorced from a nuclear program. Um, there was pushback against that by allies in Europe, Russia, China. Remember, Russia and China are the ones supplying this stuff uh, to the Iranians, as well as the North Koreans, who, of course, weren't part of that process. Um, and we've, we've faced that pushback, and I would imagine that today you'll see the same sort of pushback, um, not only from Russia and China, uh, but maybe also uh, from European states. Um, why is that? Part of that is they, they simply want sort of smooth relations. They want this thing to succeed, and so they don't want to sort of add to the existing problems by pointing out the sort of nasty things that Iran is doing. That's why I think it's important that we take quite a firm and unwavering position on it, um, because, you know, down the road, we don't want to be in the position with Iran that we're in now with North Korea worrying about that sort of ICBM threat. Thank you. I won't take up more of your time, Senator, because I agree completely with what uh, Michael said. Okay. Uh, thank you. I want to turn then to um, 
the additional protocol as part of the JCPOA and where uh, Iran signed on to the additional protocol but has not yet brought it into force. Uh, what, what needs to happen there? What should be happening? Uh, are they behind schedule? Is it a problem? Uh, I believe in the JCPOA, Senator, um, and I don't have the text in front of me, that what Iran agreed to do was to uh, basically enforce the additional protocol uh, and then after a number of years seek parliamentary approval, ratification of that additional protocol. So they're effectively um, sort of putting into practice, but they haven't officially ratified it. I assume that's meant to sort of mirror whatever sort of concessions we're making uh, in the JCPOA. But the real issue is how will we interpret its additional protocol obligations, because in the additional protocol is this 24-hour time frame, for example, for IAEA inspectors to gain access to suspected nuclear sites. Um, now, some will tell you that that's a sort of broad authority. Some will tell you, no, that's actually quite a narrow authority and doesn't help us very much. I think it's important that we push very much for the former interpretation to become sort of routine, to become practice, um, regardless of what the legalities may be. Thank you. If I could, just as a, as a general point, I think it, uh, it, it, it may seem obvious, but it's very important to keep on pressing on all of these issues all along the way uh, so that the Iranians understand very clearly that we are watching, we're enforcing in a very rigorous way. Uh, because I believe that if they get any sense that there's any leeway, they will, they will take advantage of that. Thank you very much. If I could, Senator Merkley, first of all, thank you again for being on the committee and um, the point you brought up about called upon was an issue that was uh, of great discussion when we were going through uh, this. I know that Se Secretary Kerry was in the sales mode, uh, obviously. I mean, I understand that. Um, but this was something where the committee was very concerned that we had weakened this provision. He declared that, in fact, no way they cannot develop, uh, and we can go back and look at the record on multiple occasions where it was an absolute declarative statement. They cannot develop ballistic missiles of any kind, and I'd love to do that, but uh, this, this is obviously where we've ended up, and I think that's one of the reasons the bill that's been laid out is important or something similar to it to push back on this issue, but I appreciate you bringing that up and just know that it was a point of major contention as people were trying to decide how they were going to, uh, whether they were going to support it or not. Senator Paul. Mr. Indyk, um, <clears throat> I think all religions, to a certain extent, are intolerant. Um, would you say there's a difference, though, between the in degree of religious tolerance or description of re religious intolerance between the Shia people of Iran and the Wahhabism religion of uh, Saudi Arabia, leaving, I guess for the moment, the government out and sort of the degree of tolerance between the two branches of Islam? Uh, it's a difficult uh, question to answer, and I'm not an expert on it. I would just make two, two uh, general points, which is um, I think that the Wahhabi uh, strain of, of Sunni Islam is an intolerant uh, strain. Uh, Shias are a minority within the uh, Muslim religion and uh, have uh, uh, suffered and, and feel kind of persecution as a result of that, that status. Uh, and, and so, uh, they, you know, it's, it's interesting that when you ask about the people, Jewish community of Iran is actually 
although it suffers from second-class citizenship and, and is constantly under, uh, being watched and on occasion uh, unjustified arrest and so on, but as a community, they're able to function there in a way that... Uh, uh, Jewish communities in the Arab world have not been able to survive. So that, the, the as a I broad bring, statement, gives you the, a sense. The reason I bring it up is, is that uh, when we're looking for solutions, uh, you know, if you talk to Iranian-Americans in this country, they're very open to engagement with Iran, and I think they're very open as far as uh, their religious beliefs in uh, being more tolerant, I think, than the Wahhabism. I think also when we look and we say, oh, we must push back against Iran, it's sort of like... Who, who pushed whom first? Who provoked whom first? And how far back do you go? We can go back tit for tat to 800 AD, to 832 AD or something, you know. And so, but I think there is some truth when you look at the problems over there that Iran does see things regionally. Um, they are interested in their region of the world. And they push back against people who push against them. Who pushed first? I don't know. Um, in Syria, there's 25,000 Iranian troops well, there's a whole lot of uh, Sunni folks on the other side that are being funded by the Gulf states as well. Same in Yemen. Who's right? Who are the better people? Should we be involved in any of these skirmishes back and forth? Is there an answer? Um, you know, we talk a lot about a uh, summit, you know, to try to figure out the Israel-Palestine issue. Seems to me an even more important summit would be a summit between the Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia and Iran, that every one of these are proxy wars throughout the region. Um, but I do say that we get fixated on Iran and we forget about uh, the danger of Wahhabism throughout the world. And when I see the dangers, I see if you want to get involved in a regional war, you will be opposing Iran somewhere in the Middle East. But even if you're not there, Wahhabism is teaching hatred of America throughout the world and funding it. And most of our terrorism has really come from the radical uh, brand and most of the monetary support for radical Islam and terrorism throughout the world is coming from Saudi Arabia and their money, not from Iran. Iran kills people, certainly. They're not, you know, any angels over there, but they are killing people in their regional wars for their regional interests. And I think we forget about that because we get so alarmed over Iran that we think Iran is sort of this worldwide menace. They're coming tomorrow to New York. Well, no, 16 people from Saudi Arabia came to New York and, and wreaked havoc on us. And I think it's important that we not forget that there is a religious intolerance on one side that I think really is alarming and uh, needs to be discussed. And I don't think we necessarily have the answer. Islam will have to figure out their own answers to these problems. Um, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of that as we go forward. Your comments, Mr. Trindig? Thank you, uh, Senator Paul. I think I would make two points. First is... Um, in terms of uh, who started, I'm not sure that that's particularly useful, but I can tell you from my own experience, and I'm sure Michael has had similar experience, that the Iranians are very aggressive in terms of trying to export their revolution and trying to promote their, they their would argue what in you Yemen call regional the, They would argue in, in Yemen that Saudi Arabians and the Qataris uh, well, are quite you know, aggressive in getting involved in a war there as well. The, 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 look, I'm sure, I'm sure they would argue that, but they'd be wrong. But anyway... You don't think they, there's been Saudi aggression in Yemen? No, I think that, that the Saudis intervened because they faced a threat uh, uh, from the Houthis with Iranian-supplied weapons. You don't think there's but a possible deleterious effort in bombing a funeral procession? You don't think there are repercussions for a 1,000 years in the Saudis I've... bombing a funeral procession in Yemen? Uh, this is not all Iran, and I'm not a supporter of Iran or their government, but there are problems on both sides of this war. It is messy, and there are sometimes no good people in a war. Right. 
Well, I agree with that, and if you saw my testimony, I argue that we need to be actively engaged in trying to find a political solution to that conflict. But we've been actively engaged for a very long time in trying to uh, find a political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's one I've been heavily involved in. And I can tell you that the Iranians have been purposely subverting our efforts. What is it their business to be subverting that? What, what, if they're such, so tolerant, why would they be opposed to that effort to make peace? I've not said the Iranian government is. I think there's a difference between the Shia form of Islam in Iran and the others. And I think the best way to look at this is asking a, a Western woman where you'd rather live, under Wahhabism or under the, the Shia regime. And I think the Shia religion is actually uh, more tolerant in Iran than the Wahhabism is, is of Saudi Arabia. Can I chime in one You can chime in for one second. Yes, sir. I just want to just want to say one thing, just to remind everybody. I'm skeptical of the Sunni-Shia um, sort of framework for looking at regional issues. Don't forget that Iran does support Sunni jihadist groups. Um, they're not strictly acting as sort of a sectarian Shia power, uh, but often acting in a quite cynical way to support groups like the Taliban, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, uh, and so forth. Very good, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Chairman, just for fun, I actually looked back uh, earlier today on the hearings that this committee did in the same month at the, uh, in the first year of President Obama's presidency, and this is apropos of nothing. But just to tell you how, uh, as many things change, lots of things stay the same. So our hearings that month were U.S. strategy regarding Iran, prospects for engagement with Russia, more effective strategy for counterterrorism, uh, return and resettlement of displaced Iraqis. Right? I mean, those could be the hear those could be the, the titles of hearings again, maybe under different circumstances. But uh, you know, a reminder that uh, as as the people inside the administration change, it seems that the problems confronting this country and our friends don't. Um, uh, interesting, eight years later. Um, thank you for being uh, here, uh, both of you. Let me ask Senator Paul's question in just a slightly different way, because he, he and I, and I think a lot of members of this committee, um, you do are very concerned about the lack of questions that are asked in general by this Congress about the U.S.-Saudi relationship um, and, and, and the flow of Saudi dollars, not directly to these Sunni extremist groups, but to the version of Islam that forms the building blocks of Sunni extremism. So what's the, what's the bigger threat to the United States, Sunni extremism or Shia-based extremism? Um, I think they're both a, uh, a threat. Uh, they pose different kinds of threats and the the Shia extremism is, and I think Senator Paul is right here, we're talking there about the Iranian government, which is seeking to export its revolution and uh, seeking to promote its hegemonic uh, ambitions as a, kind of, as a regional power. So the combination of those circumstances makes it particularly deadly and, and quite effective. The, uh, the Sunni extremism that we see manifests itself in, in, in some state support for, but, but basically... Islamist uh, movements uh, of the extreme uh, nature that finds its expression in ISIS and Al-Qaeda and so on. They certainly grew out of an extremist uh, uh, intolerant uh, form of, of uh, Wahhabi uh, 
Islam. Uh, and, you know, if you want to trace back the origins of this, we can see it in, in, in the two events that happened in the, early, uh, in, in the late 1970s, which was the Iranian revolution on the one side and, and the takeover of the mosque in Mecca uh, on the other side. And, and as a result of that, both of them started to export their extremist forms of, of uh, right, but I, I revolution. Have great, I have great respect for the way you think about the world, but I mean, every attack against the United States thus far has been by Sunni-based extremist groups, at least in the, I mean, we're talking about... Well, attack against the continental United continental States, United but not against, not against Americans and not against American uh, soldiers. Right. Uh, you know, the, the Iranians and certainly Hezbollah have, have undertaken terrorist attacks against Americans. Right, and inside Iraq some during, time. during the Iraq War, cer certainly. And, and, and in Saudi Arabia. And Le Lebanon. Um, let me, uh, um, Mr. Nick, let me ask you another uh, question. Um, you, you made, I think, a very profound point, which is that um, while we absolutely have an interest in getting ISIS out of Syria, there is a question as to whether it's a vital U.S. national security interest as to who ultimately controls Syria. And so uh, let me ask you just to drill down on that a little bit more, because there's a question now as to whether we have 500, 1,000, 2,000 troops there. Um, already there's reports that U.S. troops are not just getting ready for retaking Raqqa, but are actually sitting in between different factions that may be interested in fighting each other for the ultimate control of the battle space. Um, so as we think about our military strategy there, um, uh, how do we right-size that military strategy to make sure that ultimately we are not the arbiter of who controls Syria once ISIS is is gone. Because I fear that we're gonna sort of quietly make a military commitment that ultimately binds us to sort of hold territory and sort out the balance of power even after ISIS is gone. And I think you agree that that is ultimately an important question, but not necessarily one that should cost hundreds or thousands of US lives. Yeah, certainly not, not uh, the one that would cost uh, large casualties for, for Americans. So I, I agree with you. I think that our approach needs, needs to be uh, uh, to provide what is necessary on the ground to ensure the, the defeat of ISIS uh, and, and then to make sure that what comes in the wake of that defeat is a, a post-conflict reconstruction effort that is led by the people who live there. And, and uh, there needs to be, I think, a very, uh, very specific focus on building up uh, the capacities for governance of the people who live in those areas. Uh, and because it's such a mosaic, we have to be very, very careful about how to do that. But it's their business. It's not ours. We should support them. There's, I think, an international coalition that would be willing to help out in that process. Uh, but it, it, it really needs uh, uh, to be one in which we're supporting it, not in there uh, taking control of those areas. Thank you, sir. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. We talk about Iran. I want to start with like some key assumptions to allow us to kind of analyze the region. So I, I don't think either one of you would disagree with this assessment. I think, in fact, in your written statements, you both alluded to this. Uh, the, the three things that kind of drive Iranian decision-making across their spectrum, from so-called moderates all the way to the clerical uh, folks. Number one is sort of a hegemonic view of the region 
and largely tied to my understanding is their view of Persian culture and the, the how ancient it is in comparison to, for example, the Gulf Kingdoms and the like, which they view as kind of newer, inferior cultures in their mind. They certainly have great pride. And by the way, that's not new to this regime. That was also part of the thinking of the previous, the Shah, and the, who was secular, right? The second is a, they view themselves as protectors of Shia minorities throughout the region. So in addition to involving themselves in some of these conflicts, they, they view themselves as the protectors of these minority groups in different parts, or in some cases, majority groups who are not in majority power in some places. And the third is this sort of anti-Western, anti-U.S. view that Western interference in the region has imposed all these sorts of Western institutions, uh, and that's how they view Israel as a Western creation, but also the U.S. military presence. And you would, number one, do you both agree with that assessment? And number two, would you agree that, that those are widely held positions throughout the political spectrum in Iran? It, they may debate how to, how to pursue this in engagement with the United States, but that, what I've just described, is widely held across the political spectrum in Iran. Yes, yeah, Senator, I, I'd agree. I think that when it comes to the protector of Shia, it's probably more complicated in the sense that, uh, as I said, it's a cynical regime that doesn't hesitate to support Sunni jihadist groups, which are quite anti-Shia. Um, and also the supreme leader of Iran likes to style himself as leader of all Muslims. Um, but I think that it's uh, roughly true what you said. Yeah, and, and by the way, working with uh, Sunni groups in the region uh, for geopolitical purposes or as leverage on the United States or what have you is, is, is true. But if there is a Shia group somewhere in some country, Iran is always viewed, at least the Supreme Leader, as the protector of that group, or at least as an obligation to move in. Here's why I ask you that. Embedded in all of this is this conversation about what Iran's gonna look like 20 years from now. So we've had successive presidents now reach out with the hopes of somehow strengthening the hands of what we term moderates at the expense of the clerics, who by and large, my understanding of the power of the Supreme Leader is basically the same as a monarchy, in essence, almost entire power that delegates down to some of the elected branches some day-to-day -day control. But in the end, the supreme leader is the ultimate authority on how much space they have, um, and, and that includes in the upcoming elections. So I, I guess my point is, as you look now towards the future, knowing what you both know about Iran, what hope is there of whether it's a change in a new supreme leader, which I think many people anticipate will happen here fairly soon for one reason or another, and or through elections, what hope is there of a leadership in Iran based on what we know about these assumptions that moves them a little bit more in a direction that will indeed allow them to perhaps reconsider some of the decisions they're making in the region? Or does it, are we really looking at an intractable situation in the, in the foreseeable future that no matter who comes to power, both as a supreme, next supreme leader and or president, we may call them moderates because of their approach on some of these issues, maybe a little bit less conflictive, but by and large, you are dealing with people that believe that Iran has a right to be the predominant uh, power in the region because of their history as a Persian culture, who views their obligation to have to engage in the protection of Shia, and who continue to hold this view that uh, the sort of Western presence in the region has undermined the region and, and in many ways redefined it. In essence, what hope is there of a transition to something a little different for the foreseeable future? Well, we've been hoping for that transition uh, for the last 40 years. Um, and and uh, what, what we've seen is that on occasion, a uh, more moderate uh, leader will be elected as president. 
Uh, we had it in the, the case of Khatami, uh, 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 Khatami, uh, <laughs> yes, sorry, President Khatami, we had it in the case of uh, President Rouhani compared to his predecessor. Uh, but what we don't see is, is the change in the fundamental uh, attitude of the supreme leader, who I, I agree with you has, has real overriding uh, control, and the institutions which he commands uh, and is able to use, whether it's the Basij or the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps or the MOAS, uh, to advance these, these various ambitions that are, that are both hegemonic and, and revolutionary. Uh, and so, therefore, the big question is what will the next uh, Supreme Leader be like and whether, you know, uh, after perhaps five decades we'll see some thawing of that, uh, the, the inspirations that are, that are fueling uh, these problematic uh, behaviours. And that's an unknowable uh, situation. Uh, I think that we, can, we need to continue to test the proposition by holding out the potential for Iran to take up its place as a regional power, but one that does not threaten its neighbours or seek to destabilise them, uh, and does not seek to export its revolution to Shia minorities. Uh, that creates uh, in, un instability in, in these neighbouring countries. Uh, and if they are willing to, to engage in a constructive way, we should be willing to respond. We need to hold that out for them. But we also need to avoid hoping that somehow it's going to happen. We'll know it when we see it. Um, I, I would agree with that. I would say that those we consider hardliners and those we consider moderates in Iran, uh, you know, like President Rouhani, they're all committed to the survival of the regime. And anti-Americanism is a pillar, ideological pillar of the regime. And so you may have moderates uh, like Rouhani and Zarif who are more pragmatic when it comes to engagement with the West, especially economic engagement. Uh, but I think there's only so far they're willing to go. And of course, even when they go that far, they're accused of being anti-revolutionary, as we've seen in the last few weeks, uh, by the more hardline forces. I don't think that reflects the people of Iran. Um, and I think the people of Iran uh, are not necessarily wedded to those ideas, and I'd like to see us uh, engage more with them. And I think that even in a, say, post-regime situation, it's easy to envision that you could have, say, uh, military elements and so forth who still see the United States uh, as an obstacle uh, to say hegemony for Iran in the region and, and aren't eager to, to work with us or really to have any dealings with us or see us as an enemy. Thank you. Very good. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for holding an important hearing uh, and both of you for your long uh, insights for the, for the committee. Let me uh, say uh, this weekend marks two years since the uh, JCPOA was announced in terms of its outline. and. And in those two years outside of the nuclear activity, I think little has changed in Iran's historical strategic objectives and objectives throughout the region. Uh, and we can trace that from uh, since the early 2000s, where Iran has been testing the resolve of the international community's arm control protocols by testing ballistic missiles, uh, tests that went on in October and November of 2015, tests that were followed in March of 2016, January of this year, uh, all in violation of various UN Security Council resolutions. 
Uh, in January of this year, the UN itself declared that Iran had participated in arms transactions that likely violated the arms embargo that is still in place. More broadly, Iran has uh, ramped up its support for terrorist networks throughout the Middle East. It's building on a multi-decade strategy to exert more influence around the Middle East. And in addition to its high-profile stalwart allies like Hezbollah and Hamas, it's increased its support for irregular Shia militias in Bahrain, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait, and elsewhere. So I, I understand the aspirational desires of hoping that Iran can come into an understanding with its leadership of the international order, but so far I haven't seen it. Uh, and if anything, I have seen it demonstrably go uh, the other way. And I'm sure we all uh, don't need to be reminded that uh, uh, al-Assad's would be much weaker would not be for the support of his friends, both in Moscow and in Tehran. And so that's why I appreciate uh, Senator Corker, Senator Cardin, uh, and my efforts along with others in having legislation that regardless of whether you voted for or against the JCPOA, there should be efforts to try to get Iran to recognize that there are consequences for violating the international order and to try to bring it back into the international order. But if you can do all of these things and, and not have any real consequence, then you'll continue to do them, uh, especially if you, you believe that it ultimately pursues your interests. And I, I always want to take a hearing on Iran just to mention American citizens detained in uh, Iran. Uh, a number of which have regrettably, regrettably has increased in the past. Uh, particularly, like to point out Robert Levinson, uh, some of whose children uh, and a grandchild he has never met are my constituents. They have been missing now for uh, more than he has been missing now for more than 10 years. And I want to urge the administration and the government of Iran to take all the steps necessary to bring him home. We're going to continue to cast a spotlight on him. But I want to go to the questions, you know, while we seek to be aspirational, uh, how do we, uh, I believe that aspiration, you know, is a good thing, but you also sometimes have to put some hard work behind it to make it happen. So uh, I notice with interest, and sometimes I, I feel I, I listen to some testimony, not saying any of yours, but elsewhere, about this equivalency or some type of moral equivalency. Why does Iran need to be so engaged with Hezbollah? Uh, and, you know, I, I noticed in your uh, written remarks that you have said that Iran has embarked on a, dis, a distinct strategic shift from insurgency to counterinsurgency, from maintaining plausible deniability to touting its role by acknowledging its support for Hezbollah, uh, publishing details of funerals held for Shiite milit uh, militants, IRGC fighters, uh, and goes on and on. Why, why, why is that? And why, why is it that we should not look at that with some degree of real concern? Well, thank you, Senator. I, I think we should look at it with a degree of, uh, not just a degree of concern, but great concern. Um, you know, as I said, initially, uh, Iran uh, sought to, to maintain this plausible deniability. Hezbollah would deny that it got its funding from Iran or its weapons from Iran. And we've seen that shift. I think, frankly, it's because they could no longer maintain it was no longer plausible, let's say, that deniability. They can no longer maintain that because you had so many Hezbollah fighters in Syria, Hezbollah fighters also in Iraq. You had Iranian uh, officers dying in Syria and Iraq, and, of course, uh, they, they would have funerals, which uh, were not secret. Um, and so I think they, they tried to shift the narrative. Um, you know, it, it, it's undeniable that it's hard to connect fighting against uh, Sunni Arabs in Syria to Hezbollah's purported mission of, you know, quote-unquote, resistance to Israel. Um, but that's exactly what Iran and Hezbollah do. They try to connect what they're doing in Syria and Iraq 
to this sort of anti-American, anti-Israeli mission, uh, and they tout it relentlessly. Um, I don't think that many people buy this, frankly, but it's been a real market shift in the Iranian narrative. What's our best strategy to, to uh, at least try to curtail their engagement and their support for Hezbollah and uh, other entities that are destabilizing the region? Um, I would say, uh, Senator, that the, the first thing we have to uh, be uh, very uh, aware of and uh, make sure that it doesn't happen is, is uh, that Hezbollah moves to the, uh, to the south in Syria and into the Golan Heights and sets up a front across southern Lebanon and Golan Heights, which is adjacent to it. They're trying to do that now with Iranian support, have been probing in that direction. The Israelis have made it clear it's a red line for them and will do what they can to prevent it. But that's, you know, in other words, we need to, to uh, put a break on, on what they're doing first before we can, can somehow start to, to dismantle it. They have taken... Hezbollah has taken heavy casualties, the heaviest of all in terms of, of uh, troops on the ground uh, in Syria. Uh, but in, in the meantime, they've still been building their capacity in Lebanon. Uh, I think the latest Israeli estimate is that they have 140,000 rockets uh, that can be rained on, on uh, Israeli cities. Um, so what we're talking about is, you know, very well-trained now, battle-hardened, uh, highly capable, and very well-armed, uh, and in control of the Lebanese government. And nobody makes any uh, illusions about that anymore. It's all, you know, the, the Lebanese government says that Hezbollah is their army now. They didn't used to say that either. So progressively, they've grown a lot stronger uh, and, and the challenge is therefore a lot greater. Uh, we cannot uh, easily uh, disarm them. We, cannot, uh, we can prevent them, I think. We would have to work with the Russians as well uh, from moving south in, into the Golan. But in terms of uh, what you do with the, the, the broader challenge that, that uh, Hezbollah uh, confronts us with, in Lebanon in particular, we've got very little to work with there anymore. And, and uh, I don't have a good idea of how we can take them apart in Lebanon. What we can do is, over time, try to limit theirs and Iran's position in Syria. And if we can do that, then over time we may be able to impact their position in Lebanon. Thank you. I know Senator Rubio has another question. Um, I've got to run and do something else. Um, I'm going to say a few things and then turn it to, to him and Senator Cardin. But thank you for being here. Um, people will have additional questions, I know, and so we'll close the record at the close of business on Thursday, and if you could respond fairly quickly to those questions. We appreciate very much you being here. Um, I'll probably write one relative to supporting democracy movements within Iran itself and how we should look at those things. I know there was a tremendous, tremendously missed opportunity back in 2009. I understand there were negotiations underway, but it seems there's more that we could be doing there also. Uh, but again, thank you both for being here. And with that, uh, Senator Rubio, Chairman Rubio, excuse me. <laughs>
Uh, just uh, two quick points to encourage you both as you work on, on your scholarship and as you talk to others. I think the two immediate flashpoints we're going to see, and I think you would both agree, are uh, upon ISIS's defeat in Iraq is what those Shia militias do vis-a-vis -vis the United States um, uh, and whether they begin to immediately turn and attack us. Because I, I think Iran should be held responsible if they do. And you talked about Hezbollah. I just returned from the region. There's a widespread expectation that war between Israel and Hezbollah is, uh, is inevitable. And uh, I would not, I would say there are elements in the Lebanese government that are not pro-Hezbollah. The, the prime minister is an example whose father was assassinated by Hezbollah. And the argument that they make, and I'm just reporting back what they say, is, you know, anything we can do to strengthen the Lebanese army and the Lebanese armed forces undermines Hezbollah's ability in the country. There's a, that's a broader topic. Here's the one I wanted to ask you both about, and it's related to Iran, but it's a little broader. In Bahrain, where you have a 70, I think 70 percent Shia population, but a Sunni governing class, I really felt, and perhaps you know, I was wrong, but I really felt a few years ago there was an opportunity uh, because at the time the Shia, uh, many of the Shia groups in Bahrain were not asking for the overthrow of the king or the elimination of the monarchy. They were just asking for more political representation. And I really believe that had a space been created at that moment, that that provided a unique opportunity. And, and perhaps I was wrong about that. That did not happen. And I think that actually opened the door for more Iranian influence because since all the other doors were closed, that was the other avenue that was there. As far as U.S. policy in the region, when things like that emerge in the future, my argument to, the, to Bahrain was they're an important ally, but what the situation they face is unsustainable in the long term, and the better thing to do is to create an internal accommodation over time that allows the Shia to be more represented in government and therefore less susceptible to Iranian argument. Uh, I think that's a part of our strategy towards Iran in the region as well, is, is not to allow these aggrieved parties to have no other option but Iran. And I don't know if you, either one of you have done any extensive amount of work on the Bahraini question in, in, in terms of the broader policy with regards to Iran. Uh, Senator, I would agree with that. I, I think that uh, it's good, friendly advice to our allies that they uh, look to sort of embrace their own populations, that they look to... Um, be accountable to their populations as a way to defend against Iranian inroads. And we, this is the same advice. I know you're interested in Russia and Eastern Europe, Senator. The same advice we give Eastern European governments is make sure you're including those Russian minorities in your country, embracing them, treating them as full citizens, so that they don't become a potential vector for Russian influence in the country. Make sure you're addressing issues like corruption and so forth, which are often, again, an open door for Russian influence and Russian leverage uh, over the political process. Uh, and I think this is something that all of our allies, especially in the Gulf, need to pay attention to, that, that part of defending against Iran is ensuring that your own political and economic institutions are inclusive and resilient um, and accountable. Um, on, on the question of Hezbollah and proxies, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we need to look not just at the existing proxies, but where new ones may emerge, because this is clearly part of Iran's broader strategy. So you look at the Houthis, maybe they're not exactly a proxy now, but will they be in the future? Might there be new proxies in Syria? Uh, and I do think we have tools to, to push back on them. In, in Lebanon, we, we do have a government to work with and allies that we can work with, who I think, frankly, we've ignored for the past eight years. Uh, we do have a UN Security Council resolution, 1701, that, uh, that I worked on that I think has also been largely ignored. Um, we have a Shia community in Lebanon, which isn't, I think, well represented by Hezbollah, but is often terrorized by Hezbollah because it's, you know, it's, uh, they like Shia as long as you listen to them. But if you don't, uh, you're in trouble. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, the, the ability to publicize the fact that Hezbollah uh, and these other Shia proxies, they're not resisting Israel, they're not resisting the United States, 
they're killing Muslims, they're killing Arabs. Uh, that's what they're actually doing on the ground. Um, and uh, I think we can be absolutely clear about that. If I might, I, th I think uh, you're absolutely right about uh, Bahrain. Um, but I imagine uh, that uh, after they listened to you, um, they turned around and said, oh, that's just another naive American uh, advancing, you know, democratic ideas uh, and what we really, uh, uh, you know, we know better. Uh, I think that there's, there's a kind of uh, attitude in the region um, that has become quite uh, scornful of the notion of uh, uh, what's referred to as democracy or a freedom agenda or, uh, or so on. And I think it's, it's, there's been a real setback in that regard and, and it's difficult to make the case and it's especially difficult to make the case when you've got the Iranians out there looking to exploit these Shia uh, populations because then you've got a bad guy that you can always point to to excuse your own um, actions or lack of actions. So I think in, in the current circumstances, it's a very hard argument to make. I think Bahrain would have been far better off had they followed your advice. Uh, but but uh, they've, they've consistently kind of gone the other way. And then there's, of course, the influence of Big Brother next door, uh, Saudi Arabia, which, because it too sees the, the uh, Iranians as, as an encircling threat, and, and uh, they, uh, to give them their credit, and I think the Deputy Crown Prince deserves a lot of credit for this Vision 2030 effort to transform Saudi society, even while all this is going on. It's something we need to get behind. But I think we need, just need to recognise that in the current environment, uh, we, you know, the, our ability to actually uh, change their minds on these things, it's going to be very difficult to do. Yeah, it, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Sure, and, and just to be clear, I mean, I, I'm not naive enough to believe that Bahrain is going to look like New Zealand any time in the near future in terms of their politics internally. I am saying that, for example, if you look at the Jordanians who have... Uh, slowly but surely begun to make a steps in the right direction. And it's, it's a balance. If you move too quickly, it could unravel. If you move too slowly, it could unravel. But, but I, I do think if you don't give 70% of your population the belief that they have a role to play in your politics, and the reforms that were being asked for three or four years ago were not outrageous. Uh, they were, uh, if you don't accommodate for that, that pressure builds and it provides the opportunity for Iran to take advantage of it. And that was my argument at the time, so... Well, I just really want to thank our two witnesses. Uh, I found this uh, very, very beneficial. I'm not surprised. We have a great deal of respect for your knowledge in this area, and we'll be calling upon you. So the hearing was on Iran, and we talked about Lebanon. We talked about uh, Iraq. We talked about um, Saudis. We talked about UAE. We talked about uh, Israel. We talked about Russia. Uh, there's no question that Iran is engaged in a lot of the geopolitics of the entire region and, of course, has an impact directly on our national security. So this is a continuing battle. There is no simple solution here. There is no easy path forward. And we have to be mindful as we move in one direction, as I think Mr. Ambassador Indyk, as you pointed out, there will be a, there's an opportunity in a different direction for uh, problems to arise, and I think we have to evaluate that very carefully. One thing is, is certain to me, we do need a clear U.S. policy, and it must be one of engagement in that region, um, and it has to be done in a way that puts U.S. security interests 
but does not drag us into conflicts where a military solution is not an answer. So I, I appreciate very much both of your testimonies, and we uh, intend to rely upon you as we move forward. Thank you, and I want to thank both of you for being here. And with that, the, the meeting's adjourned.